0: I'm Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. If you have your Bibles, and we encourage people to be bringing their Bibles to church here, turn to the book of, guess it, guess it, Luke. We're preaching through the book of Luke. And after two months, actually more than two months, we're up to verse 13. Glory. I say glory. But we're going to live forever, and so what's the hurry? It's not not like, you know, probably four epics into eternity, I'll be on chapter 21. You know, (laughs) can you move along a little bit here, Greg? Um, And we're just going through this gospel, and as uh, insights and uh, teaching applications and issues arise, we address them. And so we're going to be dealing with Luke 1 13 through 17 this morning. And I'm going to entitle this message, Lessons from the Womb. And I just got everyone's attention. Good. I'm reading from the TNIV version, which says this. Now, you recall, Zechariah has gone into the inner court, if you've been here through this series, Uh, And he is offering up incense as the people of God are worshiping and praying and making sacrifices because that's what the temple in the Old Testament does. And that's a prototype of what we're to do because we are the temple of God. So our lives are are to be characterized by worship, prayer, and sacrifice. And insofar as we are that, we're a sweet-smelling savor of incense unto the Lord. That's what that symbolism of the incense is all about. So Zechariah lights the incense and then an angel shows up, the angel Gabriel. Gabriel. One of the few angels in the Bible whose name we actually know. And he says this, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. In the Old Testament, that's called a Nazarite vow. Certain people took this vow. uh, Among other things, it was to abstain from alcohol. So John will will be part of uh, those who take that Nazarite vow. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I want to move ahead 30 verses or so, uh, 25 verses, and read verse 42 and 44. And here Mary, who is also supernaturally conceived, comes and she meets her cousin Elizabeth, who is now going to be the mother of John. So they're both pregnant. And Elizabeth exclaims when Mary greets her, she says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And finally, one more verse that we became very well acquainted with last year, around this time. And it comes from Jesus as he's standing before Pilate just prior to his being tried, or actually during the process of his being tried. And he says in verse 36 of John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. What he's telling Pilate is, you got it right that I'm a king. You got it wrong to think that I'm just the king of the Jews or king of this tribe or king of this nation. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, the proof of that is this. If it was of this world, my servants would fight. That's what servants in the kingdom of the world do. But the fact that my servants aren't fighting, we had a couple who tried and I told them to put away their sword. The fact that I could call legions of angels right now and would kick your behind, but I'm not going to do that because my kingdom, I'm not going to fight this thing like you fight it. I'm going to fight it in an entirely different way. My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, I want to pray for this message, and could I get a few people who will be my intercessors during this message just to pray that all the authority and, and power it's supposed to have, it will have. Thank you. I appreciate that. Father, uh, we do not put our trust in human ingenuity and in human wisdom and human eloquence and human music and human striving or anything of this sort to accomplish your kingdom. You alone accomplish your kingdom, but you do it through us. And so, Lord, use this message to inform us, transform us, and cause us to walk out of this place this morning more thoroughly and authentically kingdom people than we were when we came. I pray, Lord God, the message would be heard in the spirit with which it's intended. Lord God, protect us from the evil one who always tries to distort and dilute, and mix things up. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. I'll be getting to these texts in about 15 minutes. I want to lay a a little bit of background, groundwork first. Uh, What we have going on here in Luke 1 is the beginning of the revolution. The revolution is that Jesus Christ is going to come into the world. John is a forerunner of this revolution. And Jesus Christ is going to establish with his life and ministry and death and resurrection what he called the kingdom of God, the reign of God. That's the name he gives for this revolution. Jesus did not come into this world to start a religion. In fact, back then and yet today, religion is the main obstacle to the revolution. Uh, He came to start a revolution. It's a revolution that he promises will eventually transform the entire planet and take it back to God. It's now under diabolical siege from God's archenemy named Satan. Uh, it will eventually transform the entire planet. It won't always or even usually look like it, Jesus tells us. It will be a mustard seed kingdom. It will be mainly inconspicuous, but it will be totally different than any kingdom of this world. It's a revolution. And see, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you are, a, by definition, a revolutionary. Think of yourself that way. You're a revolutionary. Your life is to be so radically different from the run-of-the-mill uh, lives of this world that it, it's revolutionary. And uh, we're called to be that, in, in, in thought, in word, indeed, deed, to be promoters of this revolution. The revolution is beginning here. The angel Gabriel always shows up at turning points in history, and uh, this is a turning point in history. Not me tying my shoe, but John the Baptist coming into the world as the forerunner of, of Jesus. Everything, as I preached so emphatically last year, and I believe it more emphatically this year than I did last year. (laughs) Watch out. But everything depends on our keeping a pure, undiluted vision for the revolution that we're to be about, in contrast to everything else that's going on on this planet. Everything hangs on our having a clear vision for the radical uniqueness, the radical holiness, which just means distinctness, of the kingdom of God, and how it's different from the kingdom of this world. Best way to articulate that uniqueness is to contrast it with the kingdom of the world. And so I want to, with very broad strokes and very briefly, do a contrast here between the kingdom of the world, which is any rule outside of God's rule, and the kingdom of God, which is everything that's inside of God's rule. Here's the distinction. In the kingdom of the world, people get life from the world. They're ruled by the world. Every individual on the planet has a non-negotiable need for life. And by life, I mean a sense of being alive, a sense of of well-being, of security, of importance, of significance, of being loved, of security. That's what I mean by life. And everybody is hungry for life. And you are either getting that life, well-being, self-esteem, security, sense of significance, you're either getting that from God... Or if you're not getting it from God, you have no alternative but to get it from the world. And it can take a lot of different shape. People people try to get life, feel good about themselves by the power they exercise over others or by the possessions that they can accumulate, by how pretty they may be or how talented they may be, by the recognition that they can get, by who they may be impressed, by the money that they can accumulate, by their religion, uh, being right about your beliefs or being right about your behavior is a classic way of getting life and feeling significant and feeling special. All these different strategies are, are characteristics of the kingdom of the world where people are living on hungry and, and, and the world becomes a feeding frenzy for them. They're trying to get life. But see, in the kingdom of God, the most fundamentally distinct thing about a kingdom of God person is that you've woken up to the futility of that way of living, you've seen the lie, the illusion. You've woken up to the reality, the truth, that the longing in your heart will never be satisfied by the things of this world, and therefore you've died to that way of getting life, and you've turned to God as your one true source of life. Fundamental difference. In the kingdom of the world, because people are living on empty, their life is invariably and inevitably and usually unintentionally self-centered. They look at the world and operate in the world out of a center of neediness, so it's always all about them. The world revolves around them. Everything they do, most of the decisions they make, how they spend their time, how they spend their resources, it's about them. It's it's on me. And the me might extend to my family, and it might extend to my tribe or my particular club and and to my nation, but but the kingdom of the world always operates out of self-interest. Whether it's the individual or family or tribe, it's self-interest. This is why the kingdom of the world is always a kingdom filled with conflict and violence. Because as everybody's living out of their own self-interest, trying to get their way and meet their needs, they conflict with one another. And so invariably there's conflict and war and violence. Whereas in the kingdom of God, because we're not living on empty, but living out of fullness, the fullness of life that comes from Jesus Christ, We're freed up, and this is freedom, to be God-centered in how we live. It's not just what's in it for me looking out for number one, but rather the kingdom person is defined by by their aspiration to seek first the kingdom of God. Before what I want, before my own agenda, I seek first the kingdom of God, and I trust that God will add unto me everything that's supposed to be added unto me, Matthew 6.33. In the kingdom of the world, the ideal is Caesar. He, the one who gets their way the most, who gets their, the toys the most, who gets the recognition the most, uh, they win in the world. And so Caesar is the ideal. Whereas in the kingdom of God, Caesar's not the ideal at all, but Christ is the ideal. And the hard aspiration of a kingdom person is that they look at Jesus in order to look like Jesus. They aspire to be like their master, and Jesus don't look a thing like Caesar. In the kingdom of the world, people exercise power over others. It's how the world understands power. Power is ability to control, ability to get your way, ability to manipulate your environment to meet your needs and further your self-interest. It's power over others. Whereas in the kingdom of God, because we're not living out of empty, it's, uh, our power to us is not power over others, but rather it's Christ-like power under others. The power to come under somebody and serve them and sacrifice for them and love them. And that's a far more powerful kind of power because that power has the ability to get in on the inside of a heart, which power over others does not have. In the kingdom of the world, the power is symbolized by the sword, which is the power to enforce law with threats. That's the most the kingdom of the world can ever do, is to pass laws and have a sword uh, to back it up. And God uses that to keep the world from imploding, and and that's one of the roles that government has. But in the kingdom of God, we don't use the sword and we don't live by the law. Rather, we look to the cross and we live by grace. Our mode of life is not one of of, of installing fear and threats in in people, but rather in doing calvary towards them, extending grace towards them. In the kingdom of the world, they're interested in regulating behavior because that's all you can get in the kingdom of the world. Uh, In the kingdom of the world, they call it peace if if people just stop fighting. You've done your job if people just obey the law. But see, you can be totally corrupt on the inside and just by sheer force have pretty good-looking behavior. That's why in the kingdom of God, we're not looking to regulate behavior. Behavior is always the tip of the iceberg. Uh, How things look is not what's important. How things really are is what's important. And to really get at how things really are, you've got to ignore making behavior the important issue. Our goal isn't isn't to modify behavior. It's to transform people. And when you transform people, the behavior follows. But you can transform all the behavior in the world, but you haven't really transformed the inside of a person. Only Calvary-like, Jesus-looking love has the potential to change the fundamental disposition of a person, the inside of a person, the heart of a person, the attitudes of a person. In the kingdom of the world, uh, the, 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 the rule they live by is practicality and efficiency and common sense. The world runs by people trying to come up with, by their own wisdom, the right solution to the world's problems, and then out of efficiency and practicality and common sense, enforcing it with the power of the sword. Everybody's out to fix the world. And most of the bloodshed and the carnage that we call human history is done by people trying to fix the world. But in the kingdom of God, we don't operate out of practicality and efficiency and common sense. Our rule is faithfulness. To be faithful to our call as kingdom people. Faithful to the one who redeemed us. To walk in, in right relatedness with our creator. And, and, and it doesn't matter to us whether we're fixing the world or not. We trust that God will fix the world and he'll use our faithfulness to do it. And if you are walking faithful as an authentic kingdom per- person, it's not always going to look practical. It's not always going to look efficient. And as sure as shooting, it ain't always going to look commonsensical. You listen to the teachings of Jesus, then there's nothing commonsensical about it if you're thinking in terms of of the world. But we trust by faith that God will use the faithfulness of kingdom people who strive moment by moment to look like Jesus. We trust that God will use that to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. And therefore it has a power that laws and swords and guns and bombs and shouting and swearing can never have. In the kingdom of the world, they have a temporal orientation. Here and now is what's real to them. Whatever they theoretically believe, they operate out of the here and now. What's in it for me here and now? But from a kingdom of God perspective, the kingdom person looks at the eternal. Not that we totally neglect the temporal, but we have a big picture understanding of the world that we see that this world right here and right now is the momentary short prelude to the real thing. And this is why kingdom people who, are, who are, are living out their identity as kingdom people, they don't cling. We don't, we don't need to cling to stuff. Mine! You see, that characterizes the kingdom of the world. It's a, it's a silly toddler mentality. My stuff, not yours. And so i got to protect it and I've got to fight you over it and, and whatever because everyone's living on starvation trying to meet their innermost needs. That's the kingdom of the world. But in the kingdom of God, you know the source of life and he ain't going to change when you die, so you don't even cling to life itself. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's uh, Revelations talks about the lamb overcoming by the, the blood of the, the testimony of the martyrs who didn't cling to their own life, who loved not their own life, but rather worshiped God even unto death. That's the kingdom of, of, of God. You're, and that's the definition of freedom, by the way. That's the definition of liberation. When you're no longer clinging to this stuff, it's like, it's here, it's gone. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Finally, and maybe most distinctively in the, in the kingdom of the world, Invariably, you, you confront people or parties or nations or groups uh, whose self-interest conflicts with your self-interest and the methodology of the kingdom of the world because it's a power over kingdom is to squash. Squash what gets in your way. The goal is to conquer your enemies. Whereas in the kingdom of God, the goal is not to conquer the enemy. Rather, the goal is to love your enemy and thereby transform and potentially convert your enemy. The kingdom of of God person responds to conflict on every level in an entirely different way than the kingdom of the world. And everything but everything hangs upon the willingness of the people of God to keep this distinction distinct. Jesus said in John 13, 13, 35 and other places, it's by your love that the world will know that I'm for real. Everything hangs on this. Is your love distinctive? Now, everybody loves those who love them. Nothing distinctive about that. But when you love your enemies, when you love in circumstances where it's not convenient, when you love in situations where where it actually costs you something, that begins to look different, and now people begin to scratch their head, and and, and they go, "What, what is up with you? That's how we testify to the reality of Jesus Christ. It's, by, it's when Jesus' life gets replicated in us and the, and the DNA that led the Savior to Calvary starts to be replicated in us. And we start doing Calvary in big ways and in little ways to, to our neighbors and, 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 and people out in the gathering area and even to our enemies. Now, the church begins to look as distinct as Calvary and that's what testifies to the truthfulness of the kingdom of God. One of the diamonds, the most shiny diamonds, that displays the uniqueness of the kingdom of God has to do with how we respond to our enemies. Jesus says this in, in Matthew five. How commonsensical is this? Do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to the other also. The word there "resist" does not mean do nothing. It just means don't respond in kind. Don't respond push to push. Rather respond push uh, respond to a push with a hug. Respond in a loving way that doesn't uh, try to detract worth from your enemy, but rather ascribe worth to your enemy and potentially convert your enemy. In Luke chapter 6, he says, But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. You will have to crucify yourself to do this, by the way, but that's what being a kingdom person is all about. Pray for those who abuse you. Respond in a radically, radically different way to conflict. And that will testify to the uniqueness, the reality, the truthfulness of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. In John chapter 12, Paul, or Romans chapter 12, Paul says, never repay anyone evil for evil. That's the kingdom of the world. Tit for tat, quid pro quo. You push me, I push back. Paul says, in line with what Jesus says, don't live that way. That's death. Here's life take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't let the evil around you, the pushes around you, the nastiness around you, the violence around you, don't let it define you. Rather, you redefine it, and you do it by returning evil with good. And finally, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, this is just the kingdom marching orders. Put away from you and the tense is really, be, be always in the process. This isn't a one-time thing. This is a daily thing. This is daily discipleship 101 right here. Put away from you all bitterness and all wrath and all anger and all wrangling and all slander together with all malice. Because all of that is kingdom of the world, power over stuff. All of that, if you look at it. See, we often think that violence is just a matter of, of harming someone with, uh, with our body. But violence that characterizes the kingdom of the world is a lot more than just what we do physically. It's what we do with our words. It's what we do with our thoughts. It's what we do with our emotions. Whenever you have that inclination to push back, to squash, that's violence. And, and uh, Paul is saying, purge yourself of all of that because it's not of the kingdom. Rather, here's what you should have in your thoughts, words, and deeds. Be kind, even to your enemy. Be tender-hearted. Be forgiving in thought, word, and deed. How forgiving should I be? Well, I'll tell you, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Think of your worst enemy on the planet right now, and now put yourself in their shoes and you're Jesus. What did Jesus do to you when you were an enemy? That's how you should treat your enemies. No ifs, ands, or buts, by the way. Love your enemy. Live in love. He says, be imitators of God. This is, let that Jesus' DNA start to be manifest in you. You know, start, start letting it. Just put aside everything that is not consistent with the DNA of Jesus that led him to Calvary. And now, as beloved children, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life up for us. The kingdom of the world is fundamentally characterized by violence, anger, hatred, and thought, word, and deed. The kingdom of God is most fundamentally characterized by the absence of, of violence in thought, word, and deed, but rather you live in love, you think in love, you speak in love, you act in love. What is love? Love is Christ dying for us on Calvary. That's the kingdom of God. People find that when they do this intentionally, and it is it is persistent work. This is the labor of discipleship, moment by moment. You can't do this once, once and for all. It's living in the kingdom now where you're aware of this at all times. But as you do this, and there are some that I know of in this congregation who for the last six months or so, since we've been talking along these lines, have been very intentional about purging their life of all, all kingdom of the world pollution. And as you do that, something beautiful begins to flower in you. It's called the kingdom of God. As you walk in obedience and ascribe unsurpassable worth to every person that you see, no if ands, or buts, you agree with God that they are worth dying for, no if ands, and buts. Uh, not only are they worth dying for, they are worth God dying for, because that's what God did for them. And as we agree, just align our will with God's will, and ascribe worth to what God ascribes worth to, you find that your view of life, your view of yourself, your view of other people just begins to radically change. You begin to see the beauty uh, and the preciousness the, the worth of people uh, all around you. It may be that you see a lot of behavior and attitudes that are not worthier or, or, or worthwhile, but you see that they're creations of God, and Jesus died for them, and you begin to see the beauty of that. And you begin to feel God's heart for people. In fact, as you, as you purge your life of all pollution, it affects your view of all creation. You begin to delight in creation. You see, in the kingdom of the world, people are walking out of a center of neediness, hungry, so the world becomes a menu to feed off of. We see the world and we see people in terms of what they can do for me. But when you're getting life from God and you're walking in fullness, you no longer look at people or the creation just in terms of what it can do for you. And that frees you. This is freedom to see that it has worth in and of itself. You begin to take seriously the first command God ever gave human beings, and that was to care for the animal kingdom and to care for the planet. Why? It's not just there for you. It has worth in and of itself. And you see the beauty of that. That is waking up to life. That is waking up to joy. That is waking up to love. That is waking up to peace. That is waking up to what it is to walk in the Spirit and to be in Christ. The reason we don't see it, usually, though it's all around us every minute. Because our eyes are polluted. Our hearts are polluted with bitterness, malice, anger, hatred, wrangling, unforgiveness. Quid pro quo kingdom of the world push back tit for tat mindlessness. And it clouds our thinking. Purge yourself of all of that and wake up to the beauty of walking as a kingdom person moment by moment. That is freedom. Now, why did I say all of that? Just wanting to. No. What's that got to do with this text? Here's the, here's the deal. Well, someone told Children's Church we're going to go over just a little bit. Just a little bit. We got out early last service, so you owe me one, okay. Uh, look, at, here, here's the thing, and this is so important. In our country and other places, but I live in this country, so I'm going to talk just about our country. We have fused the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world to a degree that I think is absolutely frightful. Uh, it it, it uh, makes me shudder. To the point where, in some circles at least, being Christian has almost been reduced to having the right opinions about the kingdom of the world. Having, knowing how to vote right and what policies to have and, and how to enact this, that, or the other thing. And so the kingdom of of God gets wrapped up with all the ugly stuff that pertains invariably to the kingdom of the world. It's one of the reasons why born-again Christians are not known in our country for their outrageous humility and self-sacrificial love we're known for a lot of things a lot of our platforming, a lot lot of our pontificating, a lot of our moralizing fighting for our religious rights we are really well known for that but the one thing on the planet we're called to be known for, we're not known for and that is being like Jesus being being Christ-like, serving others, being non-judgmental just wanting to come other uh, other, other, others and and sacrifice for them, seeing other people's sins as being mere dust particles compared to our own sin with our two by force. That's not generally what we're known for. And, and from, from where I stand, there couldn't be a greater tragedy or a greater heresy than that. Because God tells us that everything depends on that. By your love, they're going to know that I'm for real. By your love, Christ-like love, they're going to know that the kingdom of God is for real. But when we fuse, when we fuse the cross and the sword... When we fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world, it gets all polluted. It's so fused in our culture that some people have trouble hearing sermons other than in political categories. Politics and polarized debates so infiltrate their mind that when you're talking on any topic that is talked out in politics, they hear you in political categories. And what I found is that since I don't Publicly jump on the conservative uh, evangelical political camp. People automatically on me, or they try to hear my sermons as though I'm trying to propagate some kind of liberal politics. And I want to put a gun to my head. Sometimes I want to say this as clear as I can possibly say it. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to make make it even clearer. Uh, the kingdom of God isn't the right version of the kingdom of the world. When I'm talking about the Kingdom of God, I'm talking about the Kingdom of God. I'm not secretly talking about this or that version of the Kingdom of the world. The Kingdom of God isn't conservative politics. It's not the liberal version of the Kingdom of the world. The Kingdom of God isn't the Republican version of the Kingdom of the world. And it's not the Democratic version of the Kingdom of the world. And it's not the Socialist version of the Kingdom of the world. It's not the Libertarian version of the Kingdom of the world. Listen up, it's not even the American version of the kingdom of the world, and it's not the Iraqi version of the kingdom of the world, it's not the Chinese version of the kingdom of the world, it's not the capitalistic version of the kingdom of the world, and it's not the totalitarian version of the kingdom of the world. It ain't no version of the kingdom of the world. It's altogether different. It's holy, it's distinct, it's separate. My kingdom is not of this world. You see, and everything hangs on our getting that. Jesus, Jesus never fit into the politics of his day. They had their nice little categories—liberal, conservative, in between—and they're always trying to get Jesus to, to fit into one of those categories. And Jesus never fit into those categories, which tells me if we're preaching the kingdom of God, we're not going to fit in those categories either. Don't try to make us fit into those categories. That's an entirely different thing. Jesus didn't come into this world to give us the new and improved, tweaked Christian version of the kingdom of the world. He came to plant an entirely different kingdom. He came to start a revolution. Amen. You see, the kingdom of the world is, is, is. It's issues, it's divisive and limited and short-sighted and conflict-filled issues. They are, at best, messy. They're, at best, ambiguous. Uh, you can't get involved in that quagmire without being involved in compromise. And, and, and there's always if ands, and buts, which is why godly, Bible-believing, intelligent, smart, well, well-intentioned people can fundamentally disagree upon what to do about that mess. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is always this, Purge your life of all that is not of God and, and, and imitate Jesus Christ. It's simple. It's clear. It's straightforward. It never compromises. Be Christ-like. Fundamentally different kingdom. It may be that you're here this morning, and for all I know, you are the one person on the planet who's got it all right. You got the right politics for sure. You got the right candidates. You got the right policies. You know exactly how to vote and you're willing to tell other people how to do it as well. You know, you've got all the right laws that need to be passed. You know how to fix the world. More power to you. But I got a word for you. You ain't going to fix the world, even if you are right, because the world ain't fixable on those terms. The problem. You see, it's naive if the problem with the world is not a problem that could be fixed by having a certain set of laws and a certain set of policies and a certain political party there. The problem with the world is that it's alienated from God, and the only one who can fix that is Jesus Christ. And our one job in life is to spread that kingdom. Amen. Oh, you got it. Praise God. I appreciate that because in this culture, a lot of people don't. Here's the thing. I want you to know that when I'm, what I'm going to say now in the next 10 minutes, I'm not trying to fix nothing. I'm not trying to fix the world. I'm not trying to secretly sway you this way or that way. I'm not trying to, you know, resolve complex political ambiguities. I'm talking as a kingdom person to kingdom people, and I just want us, to, I'm not interested here in efficiency or practicality or common sense. I'm interested in faithfulness. And so I want to talk to kingdom people about how, what can we as kingdom people learn from this text? Very quickly, there's four things we learn about the womb from the text we read this morning. Here it is, I got eight minutes left and I'm starting my sermon. Okay, look at this, verse 12. Yeah, We're going to live forever, what's the rush? Verse 12, Gabriel says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. God answered Zechariah's prayer by giving him a child, which tells me, I'm not a rocket scientist, but tells me that John in the womb was created by God. So whatever you think about the ambiguous political issues of our day uh, as it pertains to the unborn and abortion and rights and all of that, If you're a kingdom person, you've got to agree that the unborn are creations of God. And that gives the unborn unsurpassable worth. And our one job as kingdom people in life is to agree with God and ascribe worth to whatever he ascribes worth to. The kingdom of the world always justifies violence for the sake of convenience or efficiency, or personal well-being, or national well-being. That's what the kingdom of the world does. But as a kingdom of God person, your job in life is to purge yourself of all of that and live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you, even if it is inconvenient, even if it causes pain, even if it affects your well-being. Secondly, in Luke chapter 1, verse 14, it says, "...that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born." Which tells me, and I'm not a rocket scientist, but it's pretty straightforward here, that John in the womb was filled with the Holy Spirit. Whatever you think about the metaphysical status of the unborn at various stages of development and how to resolve the deep and complex issues that presently divide our country, how to move forward in this situation, that's ambiguous. People are going to disagree about that. But if you're a kingdom person, you've got to agree that the unborn have the capacity to be bearers of God's own Holy Spirit. And that gives, them, that gives them unsurpassable worth. And our one job in life as kingdom people is to ascribe worth at cost to ourselves, if necessary to all that God ascribes worth to. The kingdom of the world typically justifies violence for the sake of convenience, efficiency, and well-being. But as a kingdom person who's pledged their life to Jesus Christ, our call is to put all that at, pull that, all that off of us even when it comes to dealing with our enemies. It may be you're here this morning and you're pregnant and it may be that you're thinking about abortion and it may be that the child that is within you was conceived in unfortunate circumstances, maybe painful circumstances, maybe even sinful circumstances. And it may be that you see the father of this child as the enemy and possibly even the baby as the enemy. At least that's how it feels right now. And none of us can judge that sentiment. We can only empathize with that and enter into it. And it maybe that you're right now tempted to follow the thinking of the world and opt for what looks like a quick solution. But I'm talking to you as a kingdom person to another kingdom person. People in the world won't understand this kind of thinking. I don't expect them to. That's why you've got to operate on totally different terms when you're dealing with politics. But I'm talking kingdom here. As a, kingdom, as a kingdom of God person, you've got to know that violence is not a solution to this problem. It looks like it is. It always looks like it is, and that's why history is full of it. But history also testifies that it's not. The truth is that on a personal level and on every societal level, violence simply compounds the problem. It doesn't solve it. As a kingdom person, you've got to know that the only real kingdom-consistent solution is Christ-like sacrificial love. Even if your child was conceived in evil circumstances, hear the words of Paul once again when he says, "'Don't return evil with evil, "'but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. "'Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.'" Don't let the unfortunate circumstances define you. But now, rather, you be used by God to bring good news to these unfortunate circumstances. God is an expert at bringing good out of evil, and one of the goods he wants to bring out of whatever evil you've been through is the good of this child that he himself has created, that bears his life, and it potentially bears his Holy Spirit. No one is saying, and I'm not saying, that faithfulness to the kingdom of God means that you have to parent that child. And, and, and keep that child throughout your life. Because for all I know, it may be the most more loving thing to do. It may be more loving to you, to this child, and maybe to others to give that child up for someone else to parent. There, is, there are other, more Christ-like solutions. And the job of, of, the, of the body of Christ is not just to say that, but, by, but to be willing to walk with people and bleed with people and sacrifice with people to see them do that. And if you're here this morning and you are maybe in that situation, I would plead with you, if, if you need to, talk to us. Call the church. We will come around you and, and help you look for uh, other feasible solutions. Thirdly, verses 16 and 17 says this. Many of the people of Israel, this is Gabriel talking about John, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I'm not a rocket scientist, but as I read that passage, it clearly tells me, among other things, that God had plans for John while he was still in the womb. God has a plan. He's an intentional being. When he creates a being, there's a purpose for it. And we could get into some interesting debates here about whether this was a prediction that had to be fulfilled or whether it was a plan that God wanted to be fulfilled and would be working towards it. We could say, I, I raise questions about how does John's free will play into this you know, prophecy. and That would be fun on a different occasion. But right now, what I want us to simply see is this, that God had plans for John which tells me that that God has plans for the unborn. So whatever we think about the metaphysical status of the unborn at various stages of development and how we might weigh those things politically and how we might think it best to move forward in this radically divided, pluralistic society that we're now a part of. Did you get all that? (laughs) As a kingdom of God person you've got to know that God has plans for the unborn and that gives them unsurpassable worth and our one job in life is to ascribe worth to everything and everyone that God ascribes worth to. Our job. Our job is to align our will with God's will, our plans with God's plans. Never to abort God's plans for the sake of carrying out what we think are our plans. It's an entirely different perspective from the kingdom of uh, uh, the world The kingdom of the world justifies violence in cases where someone's plans obstructs our plans or a nation's plans obstruct our nation's plans. It typically does that. But as the kingdom of God, person whose life is pledged to Jesus Christ, your call is to purge yourself of all that violence and rather to be willing to suffer for others if need be, even if they are your enemies, even if they threaten to thwart your plans, even if it's your unborn who's maybe going to put a hindrance on your plans. It may be that your pregnancy was unplanned and that it puts a serious crimp on your plans. And the the rest of us have to be empathetic with that. We can't judge that sentiment. But as a kingdom of God person, you've got to know that God has plans for your life, but also has plans for your unborn child's life. And um, as a kingdom person, talking to another kingdom person I call on you, not to engage in violence towards your unborn for the sake of your plans. There are other solutions, and if you're willing and desirous, we would love to walk with you, We'd be honored to walk with you regarding those other solutions. Finally, number four, Luke 1:44. Elizabeth said to Mary, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Which, among other things, tells us that God used John in the womb to communicate truth. Elizabeth got the truth that Mary was blessed and the child inside of her was the Messiah because of John's response to the Messiah while John was still in the womb. What that tells us is that children not only can be the bearers, are the bearers of God's life, they have the capacity to bear God's spirit, but now we hear that they can bear God's word and be used to communicate God's word. And so that gives them unsurpassable worth. And our one job in life is to agree with God. And to ascribe unsurpassable worth to what God ascribes unsurpassable worth to. In the kingdom of the world, uh, what it tells us is that In fact, I can say this to you this morning if you are pregnant. If you are open to it, God will speak to you through that unborn child. There are things he wants you to learn through that unborn child. He'll he'll teach you something about his love for you through that unborn child. He'll teach you something about compassion and walking in Christ-like love through that unborn child. In the kingdom of the world, we never listen to our enemies. In the kingdom of the world, we demonize our enemies. If you get in the way, then you are evil. We tell evil stories about you. We don't listen. We don't learn from our enemies. We just try to squash them. That's what typically goes on. But kingdom of God people we're called to be radically different and do a radically different thing. And here, if we, if we could just purge ourselves of the inclination towards quick solutions, violent solutions, and listen, God will use this to teach us stuff, to communicate to us stuff. There are other more loving solutions. And if you need someone to walk with you, uh, I encourage you, to, this, this is what the body of Christ is for, to do, to do Jesus towards you. And in the back of our bulletin, we have a care pastor and you can call our care department and we'll do what we can do to come around you. And, and I can promise you that we're not gonna sit up there and just judge you. Uh, they're, they're, that's demonic, there's no help in that. Or just to give our opinions. Opinions are cheap, like voting is cheap. What, what matters in the kingdom is are you willing to bleed for what you believe in? Are you willing to sacrifice? And what this body is saying is, is that, that we will sacrifice all we can to make going full term feasible, to make this a reality. No one's going to stand over you in your problem. We want to enter into your life and make your problem our problem so it's not just your problem and walk with you to find Christ-like, kingdom-like loving solutions. That is what is best for you. That is what is best for your child. It is what furthers the kingdom of God. Amen. I want to close with this, this, this one word, and that is this. Wherever there's truth, wherever there's truth, there's the Spirit of God, but wherever there's truth, there's also the devil. And the devil's job, is, is he, as he does it, is to take truth and twist it and use it against us. That's what he tries to do with Jesus, where he takes truth and then he misuses it in order to uh, try to tempt Jesus into falling. The enemy could use the truth of this message to indict people here. There are undoubtedly many, many women who have had abortions here in this auditorium. And the devil would like to take the truth of this message and now use it to indict you, to condemn you, to make you walk in shame, to to think that you're a second-class Christian the rest of your life, to live in regret the rest of your life. And so the final truth I want to communicate here this morning is this truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And the truth is that Jesus Christ forgives you. Jesus Christ forgives you. What is past is past. The only importance of it is that you learn from it. Receive his total and complete and unwavering and perfect forgiveness right here and right now if you haven't done so already. All of us are sinners saved by grace, and there ain't no sin scale we're working with that says that your sin is worse than our sin. We're all sinners saved by grace. Surrender your mistakes to God, your whole past to God. And the promise of God, and it's so beautiful, is that he's so smart, he can take the mistakes and begin to weave something beautiful out of them. So no believer, no kingdom person should be a person who lives with regret. Yes, there's things we've all done that we shouldn't have done, but today's a new day. And I've learned from the past and what matters is not what's gone on in the past, but what lies ahead of me. And God can even take what was a stain that the enemy would love to use to drive you into the ground and surrender that to the Lord and he can take that and it becomes a qualification for ministry. He'll use it in your life to minister to others in various ways. Amen. 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 Be forgiven. Be forgiven. Be forgiven. There ain't no second-class kingdom people. Amen, amen, amen. If you're here this morning and you want to join the revolution, which is simply about surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, come up here to my right and, and your left up at the front. There'll be a person who would love to explain to you what that's about. Join the revolution. It's what you were created for. If you have any need that you're here and would like to have prayed for, our prayer teams will will come up again, and uh, they'll be willing to spend some time with love, honor to spend some time with you, whatever the need is. It may be forgiveness about abortion, but it could be a multitude of other things. Feel free to come up, and we'll just keep the, the music going. Let me close with this prayer. Father, help us to walk out of here free forgiven, no regrets, looking to the future. Help us to walk out of here as revolutionaries who have a single-minded focus on the beauty of the kingdom and refuse to let the kingdom of the world with all of its ambiguous mess define the kingdom of God. And help us in thought, word, and deed be continually purging our life of all that is inconsistent with your kingdom, of all that is ugly, of all that is violent, of all that is hateful, but rather, Lord, flower in us the beauty of the kingdom which always looks like Jesus dying on Calvary for the people who crucified him. The Holy Spirit be with us as we go out of this place to continue the revolution. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go on and do the revolution.